The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. All right, we are in Exodus again, and we're in Exodus 17, and we are looking at the verses right after the ones read. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 16 this morning, and he gave us the context. I just want to confess by testimony, and I, I really truly pray this is your testimony as well. I think, by God's grace, my walk with the Lord is better than when I started preaching through the book of Exodus. And I think, by God's grace, I have better faith in who he is, and I truly pray that's true for you. This book has been revolutionary in my own walk with the Lord, and I, I really hope that's the case with you. That's what I'm praying for. And I think today's passage would answer this implied question. How do we effectively engage attacks against our walk with God? How do we effectively engage attacks against our walk with God? And the title of this day's sermon is The Power for Victory. And we'll be in Exodus 17, 8 through 16. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 70. But please have the the Bible open in front of you because we do want to hear from the Lord and engage with his word. If you receive the bulletin or the notes online, there are four points. If you receive neither, and you can use your cell phone and just go to our website, the notes should be there. But I'll try to make them clear as well. So this morning, how do we effectively engage attacks on our walk with God? And number one is the battle sometimes comes when you're not ready. The battle sometimes comes when you're not ready. Look in God's word with me in Exodus 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Let me remind you who Amalek is. Who's Amalek? Who are these people? Who are the Amalekites? Where are they from? Well, Amalek was Esau's grandson, and his people became nomads who were raiding weak tribes, sort of like pirates of the wilderness, looking for anybody who had something that they could take, sort of like traveling marauders. Now, There's no indication in the text that this is based on an Esau-Jacob rivalry, and I would encourage us not to assume that it is because God had kind of really reconciled Jacob and Esau. I think it's more likely that these are pirates who see opportunity. And remember what Israel came out of Egypt with. (laughs) Lots of gold, lots of silver, lots of cattle, and no military expertise or training. So this is a large people group of about 2 million people wandering slowly through the wilderness with an incredible amount of goods. And the Amalekites become a recurring threat to the Israelite people. So why are they fighting them? Well, because they have great plunder and weak defense, and it's an opportunity. But what is the lesson for us? Well, let's not forget where we were. God has brought Israel out of Egypt. He's brought them through the Red Sea. He's provided bread and he's provided water to grumblers. He's given them great grace. And even though they had no military training, we found in last Sunday's text, their fight, their sin, their struggle came from within. Grumbling, impatience, um, arrogance, or really just a failure to trust God's good provision. But now for the first time, their enemy comes from without. Their enemy is an external threat. There's a lesson there for us right away, because here is the first battle externally for God's people, people who have just finished questioning God's wisdom and goodness are now challenged, not from within, but from without. 
Now, God has already definitively shown how good he is, even to overcome our internal doubts. Remember, he turned bitter water into sweet, and he took them to a place of 12 springs and 70 trees, the exact amount of the 12 sons and the 70 people of God that arrived in Egypt in Exodus chapter 1. But here, he helps God's people when they're facing an attack from without. Here's what you need to catch this morning. Brothers and sisters, we have attacks from within and we have attacks from without. Here's how the enemy works. He works on our sin nature, our flesh, our inclination toward evil, but there also is real spiritual oppression through the world system outside of us. In fact, you might already think that I'm stretching the text. But in 1 Corinthians 10, when Paul refers to the wilderness wanderings, he says this, these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then he goes on to say this, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We saw last Sunday that the Lord is testing, growing, and training their faith in the wilderness. And here's the second way he's growing it. He's growing it when we face attacks external to us. This is still a struggle that we have and a lesson that we must learn. The Amalekites, of course, are attacking them militarily, But we today are attacked more often spiritually by Satan, the world system. So when you read the Bible, read it with a magnifying glass, see all the details of the text, but also read it with a fisheye lens and see how this text fits with the rest of the Bible. With the rest of the Bible, we read that you and I will be tempted like them, temptations from without. Did you know the Bible says this to Christians? Be sober, be vigilant. For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, stand firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So the Bible is telling us as Christians, we have an enemy who's actually seeking to devour us, an enemy outside of us. Now I know that our Western Post-enlightenment rationalism causes many of us to roll our eyes when we hear the idea of spiritual warfare. We sort of don't take it very seriously. We think spiritual warfare, there is no immaterial world. There's only the material, what I know, what I see, what I've experienced with my empirical senses. But actually the Bible says, put on the whole armor of God because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces in heavenly places. So friend, please listen to me this morning. Satan is real. Spiritual forces are real. And according to the Bible, they are seeking to attack believers even. Charles Spurgeon preached well when he worked through this text and he said, the children of Israel were no, were not truly under the power of Amalek because they were free men. And so they were not under the power of sin. Yet the yoke of sin broken by God's grace from our necks does not remove the responsibility to fight as free men against a foe. Now that we are alive from the dead, we must wrestle with principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness if we are to overcome. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you have a category 
in your Monday through Saturday of wrestling against spiritual wickedness? Do you have a category in your life of, here's how I'm going to put on the armor of God and withstand the attacks of spiritual oppression? If you don't have a category for spiritual warfare, you're a casualty already. If you're not ready to put on the whole armor of God and pray in the power of the Spirit, then you can be sure that you've already fallen. 2 Corinthians 10 tells us the way Satan works. Because maybe right now you're thinking, well, Josh, what does that mean? What does it look like? How does Satan work against us? 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5 says this, Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What are these strongholds? The text says we destroy arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to Christ. So, brothers and sisters, what is the most common way that we are attacked? The answer is through false ideas, through false ideas. Have you noticed that there is a lot of access to bad ideas? (laughs) You can get them anywhere, at any time. How did Jesus describe Satan in John 8.44? He is a liar and the father of lies. You might say, but other people in society are surely writing things for my good. Other people who are leaders, whether or not they're Christian, are surely doing things for my benefit. But we read in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So we have Satan, who's the father of lies, working through the world system, and the world system is not actually made to help us love God. So we live in a world that is spiritual warfare. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen through 15 says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so this warfare is subtle, which is why we tend to not see it. It's also enticing. Thessalonians 2.9 says Satan draws through signs and wonders. Satan can tempt even you, Christian, to sin. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3 says, I'm afraid that just as the serpent deceived Eve, so your thoughts will be led away from sincere devotion to Christ. So even a believer can be tempted by Satan to lose devotion for Christ. Satan chokes the word as it's given, as Jesus said in the parable of the soils. Satan can even work sickness and disease as we see people delivered by the power of him in the work of Christ. Satan is called a murderer in John 8.44 by Jesus. Satan can actually hinder the plans of missionaries. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through 18 says, We endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face, but Satan hindered us. Paul says our plans were actually hindered by the enemy. Finally, Satan accuses us before God. So how do we effectively engage spiritual warfare when we have this enemy? Well, if number one was sometimes the battle comes when we're not ready, now number two, the power that comes only through prayer. Look in God's word in Exodus 17, verse 9. So here they are, they're weak And they're very able to be overtaken. And now in verse 9, so how do they respond to this threat on their walk with God? Literally their walk with God, because remember the pillar of cloud and fire means they're literally walking with God every day. This is a threat to that. How do they respond to that in verse 9? So Moses said to Joshua, 
Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. I think the NIV helps when it says choose for us some men because the idea is it's not like they're looking for military trained men. They don't have any like that. The the idea is can you find any able-bodied males with a pulse? Just take them with you and go out into the battle. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now if we read this in like a western materialistic rational way, it sounds insane. There's an army that's coming to attack you and your plan is to divide your forces? Your plan is to send people on top of a hill with a staff? How is that a plan? What would we say in our elite circles today? We'd say hope is not a strategy. But look at what they're doing. They actually know where the power is. You should notice a few things in the text that maybe you have an ear for. The word tomorrow should stand out to you. You remember the word tomorrow from the plagues, right? All these times that Pharaoh's going to do something, Moses says, tomorrow, this is going to happen. Tomorrow, this is going to happen. And here it is again. We're going up here because tomorrow, God tends to work (laughs) through this staff. Ding, ding, ding is the idea. See, the Lord is able. And so Moses goes up to a hilltop. Yes, Joshua and the others will swing the sword, but clearly the spotlight of the text is not on anybody swinging the sword. Now, you could object right now. You could be thinking, Josh, you're putting stuff in the text that isn't there. We don't know that Moses is actually praying. I read some very smart people this week who argued that Moses is not praying. Nahum Sarna said Moses held up a standard bearing a symbol of the presence of God. John Currid, who's a respected evangelical scholar, wrote, There is absolutely nothing in the text to support the idea that Moses' hands are raised for divine intervention. It's really interesting that people are saying there's no way this is prayer. Now, most of those people, when you keep reading them, they say it's not prayer, but it's a demonstration of dependence on God. And I'm like, do you know what prayer is then? (laughs) Because maybe, maybe you don't. Um, Let me explain why this is prayer. And let me also explain why people think it's not prayer. When you raise your hands to heaven in a sign of dependence, you are praying. In Exodus 9, Moses said, I will spread my hands to the Lord in prayer. Why do some very smart people think this is not prayer? I think it's because we have anglicized what prayer is. Let me explain. Some of us think you can only pray when you're using intelligible words. But that's not what the Bible says. Romans 8 verse 26 says, The Spirit of God communicates for us when we have groanings too deep for words. So if in your mind you're like, no, prayer is only when you say certain words, you're defining prayer differently than the Bible's defining prayer. Also, if you define prayer as something that can only happen in a reserved kneeling position, you're not defining prayer the way the Bible defines prayer. The Bible repeatedly shows people praying with their hands up, with their faces to the ground, laying prostrate. In fact, if, like me, you have a stoic and reserved personality and you feel uncomfortable raising your hands, I, I can relate. I can understand that. But First Timothy 2, verse 8, Paul says, I will that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So if you ever feel it, it's okay to put that hand in the air, okay? Also, sometimes, and I've found this out as a pastor, some people think you can only pray in a certain place. Now, I think it's great when people come to the church and pray. And I want you to know the auditorium is always open for you to do that. But I hope you don't think that's the only place you can approach God. 
See, in John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and she tries to have a theological argument with him. Are we able to pray on this mountain or on that mountain? And Jesus says, the time has come where it doesn't matter what mountain you're on. See, the location is not where you pray. Other times people think, well, prayer is only a formal situation that you've carved out. You can only pray what we might call kneeling prayer. But the Bible also talks about what we might call walking prayer, prayer as you're driving, prayer as you're moving, prayer as you're going. Think Nehemiah on his way up to meet and says, Lord, please help me. That's prayer too. So my argument, and I think the Bible holds this firmly, is that what Moses is doing is praying. And prayer access is a power from the Lord that does not come any other way. There is no other way that this power will come other than through fervent, faith-filled prayer. Now look in verse 10 and we see how they carry out Moses' enjoinder. So Joshua did. Now it's interesting, right? Joshua is introduced here for the first time in the Bible with no other further explanation. Why do we not get a background story about him? Well, probably in part because when the Pentateuch was written, he would have been known. The readers would have had a sense of who he was, what his background is, but also because this is revealing who he is in real time. So what kind of person is Joshua? This is something we already learned in verse 10. He's the kind of person that when the leader says, this is what God wants us to do, he does it immediately which rather stands out given the way they've been complaining in the wilderness up until now. So Moses says, here's the plan. It might sound crazy, but Joshua immediately does it. So verse 10, Joshua did as Moses told him, fought with Amalek, while on the other side, Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Hur also we know very little about. We read about him again in chapter 24, 14. Moses trusts the people to him. But these are people that are helpers, aides, and God uses them powerfully. But now verse 11 tells us something remarkable. Look in God's word in verse 11. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Well, if there was any doubt about it in your mind before, clearly the battle is not won by the people swinging the swords. Clearly the soldiers with Joshua are not going to be the reason this battle is won. Friends, this battle is not one on the battlefield. It's one on the hilltop. And there's a lot of battles in your life. They're not one with your engagement. They're one in the prayer closet. They're not one with what you're doing. They're one by the God who is able, who is accessed through prayer. I love when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. One of the things Jesus taught them in the Lord's Prayer is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is what they're praying for now. Lord, deliver us from evil. And the king of kings can bring it. I love that they only succeed when the staff is up in the air. Because the staff is the staff of God. And when the staff is high, it shows us that God is sovereign and victory is his. He's not king. He's king of kings. He's not Lord. He's Lord of lords. And the battle is always his. And so is the victory. We read this about us as believers. If God is for us, who can be against us? When his name is on high, there is no other outcome. But we grow weary. So look in verse 12. And I love the lesson this here for us. But Moses' hands grew weary, don't yours. So they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and her held up his hands. 
One on one side and the other on the other side. So his stand, his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. I can't think of a better image of a prayer team. That's a prayer team. (laughs) When the prayer partners both have a hand on your hands until the going down of the sun. Yes, one man gives out. But as Ecclesiastes says in chapter 4, two are better than one, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Brothers and sisters, God made us for a team. He made us interdependent on Him, equally in need of Him. Let me ask you some specific applications. Do you let others pray for you? Are you one of those people that's like, I'm not going to tell anybody what's going on in my life because that's awkward? Why? Why would you not let others pray for you? Why would you not let others put their hands under yours? Say, hey, here's what's going on in my life. Would you pray for me? Let me ask it a different way. Do you pray with other people? Do you let other people pray with you? Other brothers and sisters, do you sit down? Will you pray with me and I'll pray with you and we'll pray together? Because I know I need your help. I know God made me faint and weary. Will you beseech with me? See, the battle can come when you're not ready. The power only comes through prayer. But now number three, victory comes only by the Lord. Chapter 17, verse 13. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek. The Hebrew word chalash means decisive victory. So the people of God are incredibly outmatched. And yet they win a decisive victory. Because the Lord's name is called on. At the end, you could misread it and say, well, no, Josh, it says that they won with his people with the sword. But don't you remember what David said in 1 Samuel 17, verse 47? All this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give it into your hand. These swords they didn't have when they left. They probably made a couple crude ones in the wilderness. They had no training with them. There is no question that the battle's victory is decisive not due to military expertise. The battle's victory is decisive due to the Lord who acts. Throughout the rest of the holy war that happens in the Old Testament conquest and movements through the wilderness and through Canaan, we read that the nation of Israel was not even allowed to have a standing army for this very reason. So that they would always know that they will never win because of what they bring to the battle. In Deuteronomy 20, Moses says this, When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you. The Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, you shall say, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Do not let your heart fate. Do not let your heart panic, for the Lord your God gives victory. See, prayer recognizes who is able, and the person who is able is the Lord. I think Philip Ryken is helpful. He writes, the 40 years in the wilderness were intended to wring Israel's self-love and self-sufficiency out of God's people as he had done with Moses for his 40 years in the wilderness. Ryken concludes, the most important lesson of the wilderness wanderings is not that we're incapable and insufficient in ourselves, though that is certainly true. Rather, the lesson is that God is stronger than any enemy we would face. 
God provides for his people and his salvation will not fail. God brings his people home. That's the story of the wilderness. God brings his people home. Which leads us to number four. The final defeat of the enemy. Number one, the battle comes when they're not ready. It's still true. Number two, the power comes only through prayer. That's certainly still true. Number three, the victory only comes from the Lord. But I love how this section concludes. The final defeat of the enemy. And now we'll look at verses 14 through 16 pretty slowly. So let's start with verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. So the Lord here telling Moses to write, which is why we have the Pentateuch, recite it in the ears of Joshua. He'll be a future leader. But now notice this. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. This is repeated later in Deuteronomy 25. Moses again says to them, remember how Amalek attacked you when you were weary, but the Lord gave you rest and he will blot out their memory. I think there's two things we should learn from that. The first is this. The memory, even, of the attacks that God's people have endured will be forgotten. Did you know that there will be a day when God will wipe every tear from our eyes? Every battle scar will be removed. Every memory of the failure and attack of the enemy will be forgotten. So we had a missionary conference here a month or so ago, and um, it was totally a planning problem by me. I scheduled so much that day that we got to the point where my children were past. Have you ever been, like, they've had too much, <laughs> you know? So they're running in the hallway, and Levi's running right there, and he slams into that door, and it pops his eye open. And so, he, well, his eye's still in his head, um, <laughs> but it, it split his, his eyelid right here. And so he had a ton of blood that day. And so maybe you've noticed him since then. He has had um, kind of some stitching and some scarring going on. And it's starting to look to look better. But the other morning I was praying for him. I dropped the kids off at school and I was praying for Levi. And I said, Lord, I know you can do anything. And I know this seems like a small thing. But Lord, would you please be gracious enough to heal up his head so that he doesn't have a scar anymore. Because when he's in school, I don't want him to look like he's already served time. <laughs> you know? So if you could just heal that up, that would be great if you would do that. But then I was sitting there at the red light, and I was thinking about that. And this may sound sappy to you, but it almost brought me to tears. Because I was thinking about, I'm a father who cares about his little boy, and I would really love if his little boy's scar is removed. But God cares about his son way more than I care about mine. And he's never losing his scars. And that just, man, moved me that the Lord is going to take all of our scars away because he bore them and he wears them forever. And I would want to encourage you this morning that for God to blot out the memory of all of our enemies means that he bears the penalty of them, that he bears the cost of them. That's what a great God we have. But it also means this. That if you are the enemy, if your neighbors are the enemies, if your family members are the enemies, if you oppose God, if you oppose the Lord, you should know that the end for you is that you will be wiped out. Now, I know we don't talk about it that way, and I know that we don't say that enough, but the Bible says it very often, and I say that so that no one will perish, but so that all will come to repentance and salvation. All who oppose the Lord will fail. Do you know why we don't know Pharaoh's name? Because it's been blotted out. The Egyptians, they don't write the record of 
getting destroyed. They don't want a record of them getting destroyed. But they go from the strongest empire in the history of the world to, at best, a bit player. Because when God wipes out Pharaoh, that's it. It takes their economy, takes their cattle, takes their gold, takes their silver. It's over. And so it is for everybody who opposes the Lord. You need to know this so that you come to faith in him. The wages of sin is death. And if you think, I don't oppose the Lord, but if you oppose his purposes, if you oppose his people, you do oppose the Lord. Jesus said to Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Saul was opposing the church, but that is to oppose the Lord. And so anyone in your family, in your own life, maybe you today, if you're against the Lord, I want to encourage you to experience what Paul did to humbly repent and find grace from a God who forgives even those who oppose him. Paul wrote in Galatians 1 verse 13, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, but God called me by his grace when he revealed his son. This morning, I want you to know that there's a God who will forgive you because there's a Jesus who will bear your scars. But come to him, call on him, and encourage your loved ones to do that because there is no eternally good future for those who do not accept the Lord's anointing. But now look in verse 15. I said we'd be going a little slower on these final three. Verse 15, let me read it to you again. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. So Yahweh's name has been now added with several descriptions throughout the book of Exodus. So we see the multifaceted glory of Yahweh and the Hebrews in front of me. It's Yahweh Nisi. This is now another way we know the Lord, the Lord as banner. A military banner is something that establishes the identity of the soldiers It helps them know who they are. On the battlefield, it helps them keep their bearings so they know where they are. And it gives them courage and hope. And as long as their banner is still flying, they know that the battle is not lost. Let me tell you this morning, we in our culture, we make really bad banners. We find things to rally around. We find things to center our hope around that they're not worth centering our hope around. Let me tell you, on the other side, a week later after an election, we cannot put our banner in politics. That is a banner that blows over. And if you've put your banner there, I'm just so sorry for you. And I'm sorry for churches that maybe have taught you to put your banner there. There is nothing on earth that you can put your banner in. Nothing. It is all sinking sand. The only banner that matters is the banner of the Lord. That's the only one that never blows over. When Moses says, the Lord is my banner, we have to realize how badly we need this. So let me ask you this morning for real. Answer this in your heart before God. What is your banner? Where do you look for courage in times of hope? What podcast do you put on to say, that's the guy that's going to bring me back? What show do you watch to say, oh, they're going to bring me back to the straight and narrow? Friend, if it is not Christ, it is the wrong banner. You need one that will rally you, regardless of what's happening anywhere else. In fact, banner language is applied to Jesus throughout the rest of the Bible. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, we read, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. Isn't that wonderful? The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. Jesus knew this when in his own ministry, he said, the son of man must be lifted up 
so that through that all men can be drawn to him. We used to think this way. We used to sing this way. We used to sing songs like Onward, Christian Soldiers, marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Don't lose sight of what your banner is. Keep it on the right thing. But now number, well, verse 16. Verse 16 if you look there. I'm going to go very slow on 16 because it's a little bit confusing in the Hebrew. Let me, um, let me try to explain it. Verse 16, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. I have the Hebrew in front of me. It reads, Ki Yad El Kase. So Ki is on or over. Yad is hand. El Kase is on or above or against throne. Those prepositions can go a lot of different directions, which is why translations differ. I'm going to show you the three common ways translations interpret this verse, and then I'll give you my two cents, which might be an overestimation of what I can add to this. But here are the three ways. Number one, if you have the NIV, it reads like this, because hands were lifted against the throne. So the NIV is interpreting it to read, Amalek was shaking their fist at the Lord. Okay. If you have the NASB, it reads, and he said, the Lord has sworn, sworn. So they're translating it to mean it's like the Lord put his hand over his heart and vowed, I'm going to punish this people. That's the second option. If you have the net or the CSB, they read, my hand is lifted up to the Lord. They're translating it as Moses raising his hand up to God. So see, the three options are this. The first, is Amalek shaking their fist in hostility. The second is the Lord swearing that he will finish his work and he will judge those who are sinful. But the third is Moses raising his hands to pray. Well, which which option is it? Well, let me first say in God's grace, all three of those options are true elsewhere in the Bible. So none of them change our theology. They're all possible. They're all biblically right in other places. But for my overestimated two cents, I think the third option is the most likely in context because the point of the passage is that Moses lifted his hands in prayer to God. The point of the passage is that victory only comes from the Lord. So here in the wilderness, we've seen three themes. Over and over and over in the wilderness, believe in the Lord, believe in the Lord, the Lord who gives bread, the Lord who gives water, the Lord who gives victory. We've learned in the wilderness, walk in the Lord, follow his steps, even if the path is different than you think. We've learned in the wilderness that battles don't pass in the wilderness, but better days come when we arrive. Now we know the promised land is not exactly like heaven, but we know that there's a principle there that the New Testament tells us about. Hebrews 11, these people died in faith, not having received what was promised, but having seen and acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, seeking a homeland not made with human hands, a better country, a heavenly one. That is the same pursuit we are on. But let me give some reminders for us as Emmanuel this morning. Emmanuel, church, kingdom of God, Christian. Remember, we don't have a military call, nor a political mission, nor are we to be exited from a nation. Jesus did not exit the Israelites from Rome, and we're not to be exited from wicked rulers either, because our kingdom is not of this world. But though our kingdom is not of this world, in this world we will face real spiritual warfare from a real enemy who does attack Christians and who can harass us and limit us tremendously. So how can we find victory from that enemy? 
Well, the victory only comes from the Lord. Now, in Exodus, we've already seen the victory comes in two different ways from the Lord. Do you remember when they were at the cusp of the Red Sea in chapter 14? And Moses said, all you have to do is stand still and be silent, and the Lord will give salvation. But here in this chapter, they needed to call out on the Lord and engage the battle. Which is it, you might say? And the answer, of course, is both. But let me press out why that's really encouraging. See, the victory always comes from the Lord, but sometimes we're engaging through faith. Other times there's nothing we can do. The victory always comes from the Lord, but sometimes it's a boy swinging a sling against a giant. And other times it's an apostle who fell asleep like Peter did in Acts chapter 12, and the angel just takes the chains off anyway. In both cases, the Lord wins the victory, but in one case, you're actively engaged, and in the other, there's nothing you even could do. Here's why that's really good news for you. Let's use an example like parenting. If you're parenting, the battle is only won by the Lord, but if you're actively parenting, there are several things you ought to be doing in faith in what God can do through his means. But imagine your child is an adult, maybe they're middle-aged, and they're on the other side of the country, and you're like, Josh... I mean, what can I do now? They're no longer under my influence. But here's the good news. God not only wins battles through the person slinging a sling, he also wins battle through the apostles who fell asleep. You can still pray and God is still able, even if there's nothing that you can be engaged in personally. The battle's from the Lord, and so the victory is from the Lord. And the Lord doesn't need military weapons The Lord paradoxically wins the greatest victory through what looked like defeat on the cross. But Jesus, in that moment, secured the victory and rose victoriously. So what should you and I most practically do from a passage like today? And here it is. Ready? Pray. I must pray. You must pray. You and I must pray together holding each other's hands. Emmanuel, in the passage in Ephesians 6 where we're told to put on the whole armor of God, it ends by saying, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers. Let me quote Philip Riken, who writes, this is not true only for individual Christians, but for the church. If we do not ask God to defend us, our members will be divided, our leaders will fall into sin, our missionaries will fail to see any fruit, and the lost will not hear the gospel, both individually and corporately. If we neglect prayer, we will lose spiritual warfare. Even if we fight like Joshua, we will not win unless we pray like Moses. Why does it all depend on prayer? Why is prayer so effective? Why does it make the difference between victory and defeat? The answer is because God is the difference between victory and defeat. And it is by prayer that we depend on him to win the battle. The victory depends on prayer because the victory depends on God. So here's what I'd like us to do today, and I know we don't always do this. Uh, Hunter, if you can come up and play through a stanza or so, and while he he plays just a stanza or so, because I know we have children's church to get in all that. But before all that, I'd like us to just pray out loud in this room right now. And here's, I think, the best way to do this. Find someone near you, ask them their name, if you don't know it, and pray out loud for them. Pray that God might do what he alone can do, regardless of whatever is going on in their life. You've been listening to Josh Scally. 
pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e-b-c-r-a-l-e-i-g-h dot com.